take your Bibles out this morning and turn with me to the book of Isaiah. You'll notice this is not the book of Acts. By the way, with uh, 28 chapters in the book of Acts, uh, we are going to uh, need to march along. So tonight and this coming Wednesday night, I just finished Mark on uh, Wednesday nights, and so tonight and Wednesday we'll be in Acts chapter 5 this evening. So when you come back next week, we'll be jumping over 5 and 6, because remember that passage on the deacons we covered several weeks ago. And uh, I just don't want you to get here next week and think you're in some kind of time warp or something and wonder where you've been. You've missed all these passages in the book of Acts. So we'll be back in it tonight. But I did mention a passage last week about Watchmen on the Wall, and I want to cover that this morning. And uh, that'll be the main issue that I'll get to this morning in verse 6 of this passage. But I'm not going to get there immediately. Because I want you to see how the thought in chapter 62 develops before we get there. So we can see it in its context. And so find um, find Isaiah chapter 62. And also for later on in the message you may want to place a finger in Genesis 18. Stand for the reading of God's word please. Will you take your place? Isaiah writes, For Zion's sake I will not keep silent, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken and your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called my delight is in her and your land married. For the Lord delights in you and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman... So shall your sons marry you, and as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen. All the day and all the night they shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give Him no rest until He establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. The Lord has sworn by his right hand and by his mighty arm, I will not again give your grain to be food for your enemies. And foreigners shall not drink your wine for which you've labored. But those who garner it shall eat it and praise the Lord. And those who gather it shall drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. Go through. Go through the gates. Prepare the way for the people. Build up. Build up the highway. Clear it of stones. Lift up a signal over the peoples. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And they shall be called the holy people, 
the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. God, we thank you for your precious word. The Bible tells us all flesh is as grass. It withers away. But the word of our God stands forever. Lord, give us ears this morning to hear your word. Give us ears as Jesus cried out to the churches of Revelation that we would hear what your spirit is saying to the church. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Last week we saw how Peter and John were released from the authorities. They had healed the the man at the temple and this had caused quite a stir. And the authorities showed up and they locked Peter and John up overnight. The next day they charged them to quit preaching about Jesus. And of course they refused to do that. They went back to the church and they reported everything that had been said. And uh, last week we saw what the church's response was. They did not despair. They did not quit. In fact, they did just the opposite. They went before God in prayer and they put the matter into His hands because He's sovereign God. And when they prayed, the power of God fell on the church. Now that's a principle we've all but lost sight of today. And yet on one occasion, Jesus said, my father's house is to be a house of prayer. But too often today, we are anything but that. Now, speaking of the church at large across the nation, we've got everything in the world going on, but the one thing that Jesus talked about. Churches will have aerobics classes going on, and they'll be packed. People block the time off. We'll have basketball games and people will fill a gymnasium. We have prayer and a few might show up. And then we sit back and we read about the great revivals and the great awakenings of past centuries. And we wonder why today we don't see things like that happening. Now this morning I want to cover in depth what I introduced to you last week. I mentioned last week I was asking of you to take one hour out of the week, just one hour, and devote it to intercessory prayer. Pray for your church. Pray for our missionaries. Pray for your leaders. Pray for your nation. Pray for your schools and your children. Pray for the lost. And we need to get beyond the kind of prayers that just say, God bless everybody and bless all the missionaries in the world. That's why I left you some pages, some prayer points out on the Welcome Center that you can incorporate those things into your prayer time. My desire would be that each of us would discover that one hour is so inadequate and that out of that a, a prayer movement would begin in your life. I'll be doing some training in prayer, but more than anything, we need to get down to praying. We talk about it all day long, but we need to just do it. 
And so as I mentioned a moment ago, I want to take a break this morning out of the book of Acts and cover the passage more in depth that we just made passing reference to last week. Now, let me say something here. I know, I realize back in the late 80s or 90s, there was, there was one of our most prominent pastors in the convention, um, Pastors of Mega Church down in Florida. There's a whole module out called the Watchman Prayer Ministry. Some of you from years past, your church might have even taken part in that. It's based on this passage. I can't find that module anymore. I've tried. I've called the church. I've emailed the church. I've done everything but drive down there to see if I can, if there's some kind of that module is out somewhere so maybe if some of you are taking a business trip to the Miami or Fort Lauderdale area uh, any anytime soon you can drive by there maybe in person they'll respond to you you'll have more success I, I want to give credit where credit's due but I can't plagiarize what I don't even have in my hands but anyway there is that module out there the watchman prayer ministry everybody taking their place on the wall But again, I'm not going to just jump into that theme immediately because I want you to see the context and the way the whole thing is laid out. And and what we learn is that out of hardship, God brings renewal. And as part of that renewal, He calls on His children to partake through prayer. And as we pray, we experience God's grace and kindnesses. First thing I want you to see with me this morning is that God disciplines his children for a purpose. Look again at verses 1 and 2. For Zion's sake I will not keep silent and for Jerusalem's sake I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nation shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. Now if we were to read down all the way through verse 5 we would see that the first five verses of this chapter speak of what God is doing and will do in Israel. He has chastened them but not without purpose because God doesn't do anything without a reason or a purpose. The context here is that there will be a new day for Israel. God's time of judgment is over. The people are coming back from exile and God is going to do a new thing in them. John Oswald, in his commentary on the book of Isaiah, points out that this chapter has overtones of of Isaiah 40. In Isaiah 40, uh, God says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The whole passage has the atmosphere about it or the the tenor about it of great hope. A new beginning. A fresh start. 
The people of God are going to see God work in them again. And so there is tremendous hope. Now, of course, many Bible scholars place what happens in these later chapters of Isaiah as not only pointing to Israel coming back to their land again after judgment and exile, but also of the end of times when, as the Bible points out, God is not done with the Jew. Paul points that out in Romans 9-11 through that God is going to do something to graft the natural olive branch back into the olive tree. You and I as Gentiles are the wild olive branch. And if God can graft us in, He can graft in the natural olive branch again. And so what we end up with is the glorious kingdom of God made up of Jew and Gentile, the millennial reign. Now, Dr. Charles Ryrie, for one, indicates that this whole entire chapter deals with the millennial kingdom. Now, I beg to differ. I think this passage has the immediate, the the now and the not yet tension to it. They will enjoy God's renewed promises as they come back to the land of Israel and yet these promises won't fully be realized till in the future, even the future from our vantage point. But again, I want you to see for the moment how God has made this change in His people. The change that God has wrought in them has been through the, the pain and the heartache of discipline. You see, the problem with Israel is that they had trusted in all the wrong things. They had put their trust in other kings, for example. Foreign kings became a source that they turned to whenever they needed security. When the Assyrians started flexing their muscles, what did Israel do? They ran down to Egypt. In Isaiah 31, God says, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses who trust in chariots because they're many and in horsemen because they're very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. He goes on to say, The Egyptians are man and not God and their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out His hand, the helper will stumble and he who is helped will fall and they will all perish together. Then Israel's leaders began trusting in Assyria, the ones they feared. When Egypt wasn't going to be any help, they tried to strike deals with Assyria so Assyria would go easy on them. And then when the Assyrian Empire began to crumble and the Babylonians started coming to power, they tried to switch alliances to Babylon. It's as though they were always in a state of panic and they were always looking around them to find somebody or something they could trust in. The whole time God was there, but they didn't trust in Him. Then they even wanted to trust in other gods. They also trusted in themselves. And then they wanted to trust in their own disobedient leaders. And folks, we know exactly what happened. We know what happened in Old Testament history. God raised up the Assyrians. They came in and destroyed the northern kingdom, the northern ten tribes that had broken off 
from Rehoboam. When Rehoboam, Solomon's son, came to the throne, uh, Jeroboam led that revolt and they went up and formed the northern kingdoms and became very idolatrous. God wiped out the northern kingdom by Assyria and then he raised up Babylon who came in and judged the southern kingdom and under Nebuchadnezzar many of the people in Judah were carted off uh, to Babylon for a period of a 70 year exile. Now the book of Isaiah covers both of those events. The destruction of the northern kingdom by the Assyrians and also it talks about the exile of the Babylonians. But the real point that I want you to see here is that God had a purpose in it all. God was cleansing His people. He was raising up a righteous remnant and He was using discipline to do in the hearts of His people what they would not do. He was using discipline to get His people to turn back to Him and and He was using it to purify them. These first verses in this chapter are talking about God getting them on the other side, the back side of that discipline. In other words, God brings them through it and now His affections are on them again. His affections never left them though. But they're now a crown jewel in His hands. But, but think of what it took. It took discipline. Folks, why does God discipline His children? Well, you read Hebrews chapter 12 beginning in verse 4 and we see why God disciplines His children because the Bible says there anybody that truly belongs to God is disciplined. If we're without discipline, we're illegitimate children and we don't even belong to God. And then in the book of James, in the book of James, James chapter 1, you remember what James says there. He says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In other words, God uses discipline, God uses trials as a part of that discipline to bring character in. Us and to build a steadfastness and a faith that otherwise we don't have. Peter says in 1 Peter, he uses the analogy of gold. How they would make gold. I've never seen it, but supposedly what they do, they have a big old vat, they're they're molting down. Uh, the, the, the ore and, and the dross, the impurities float to the top and they pour those impurities off. They continue to heat up the gold. The impurities again rise to the top being lighter. They pour that off. They keep doing that process until there's no film of pollution on the top of the gold. And then they have pure gold. And then what they do is that big old vat of that molten lava type gold. They pour it into containers, the, the little gold brick containers. And they let it harden into the bars that we see so much of. The gold bars. It's that process of heat. It takes heat to do that. 
Oftentimes in the Christian life, what's God do? God turns up the heat. It might be through an illness. It might be through a relationship. It might be through a job. It could be any number of ways. There's no way to list out all the various ways that God has of bringing discipline to His children. But what He's doing, He's pouring the dross off. He's getting rid of everything else in our lives that we trust in. Now, contrary to what people think, this is a process of love. God does this because He loves us. He knows that whatever else we're trusting in will ultimately disappoint us and destroy us and our families. And so it's out of love that God takes us through this process. And that's what He had done with Israel. But as we look again at our text... We see that God brings Israel to the other side of that. And secondly, I want you to see that God declares His renewed love for His children. Look at what He says in in verses uh, 3 through 5. He says, You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken. Your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called, my delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. And in verse 5 he says again that your God will rejoice over you. Israel will again be married to the Lord. Now folks, this is where the song that Squire Parsons wrote, Beulah Land, comes from. The song says, Beulah land, I'm longing for you, and, and, and someday on you I'll stand. There my home shall be eternal. Sweet Beulah land, sweet Beulah land. Now, of course, what Squire Parsons is reflecting more on is that future, that, that heavenly uh, home, that heavenly Beulah land. But that's what he's talking about here. Beulah means married. Israel and Jerusalem in particular will again be married to the Lord. The image here is that for a time the Lord had given His people a bill of divorce and sent them away. But now the situation is reversed. She's no longer divorced. She'll no longer be desolate. She'll no longer be deserted. She will be the Lord's and her sons will marry her. In other words, they'll remain in the land and they'll experience God's blessings the indication is that she'll again be the place where the Lord's covenant of marriage will be carried out with his people folks I think what we need to understand here is God's not just talking about a future heavenly reign yes that's included That's the consummation of it. But Isaiah is also thinking about that time that the exiles come back to the land because in verse 10 he even tells those that have remained go out and clear the roads and make it possible for the exiles to have a clear path to be able to come back. Now when does God do all this? After the time of discipline. You see, we don't like to think about what God may be up to when we're hurting, but we need to understand something. God sees the whole picture and we don't. We're so short-sighted. 
We want everything now. It's kind of ironic. We understand all this when we're thinking about our own relationship to our children. We try to develop character in them. We want them to have a good work ethic. We want them to learn to make decisions, not just in the heat of the moment, but decisions that will yield things for the, good things for the rest of their lives. But then we turn around in our own walk with God and we want everything right now. We might question God's love, especially as we're walking through the valley. And how kind and gracious it is of God that on the other side of difficulty, God renews His love for us. God has not forgotten His people. God has not forgotten you. God is reminding Israel that He is still there. He's not left them. He will bring them back to their land and He will again work in their midst. And so God declares His renewed love for them. But now that brings us down to the point I really want to focus in on a while. We see here that God desires... The prayers of his children. Look at verse 6 and 7. He says, On your walls, O Jerusalem, I've set watchmen all the day and all the night. They shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. You see, just because the Lord's affections will be set upon them again doesn't mean that they can sit back and be at ease in Zion. There's many things that they are to be doing. And one of those things we see here in verse 6, he says, On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen. Watchmen are to be placed on the wall. Now perhaps the biggest interpretive challenge of Isaiah 62 is the question of who is doing the speaking. Is it God or the prophet? Is it God that's going to place watchmen on the wall or the prophet that's going to do that? Now I'm not convinced that's as huge a challenge as some want to make it because as any true prophet of God is is what he's supposed to be doing is speaking only the word of the Lord. And so I think it's immaterial if it's God or the prophet. But the question again is, is God the one putting watchmen on the wall? Are they angels? Or are they men? Or is it Isaiah placing men on the wall? Again, we shouldn't argue the point. The real point is that there are to be watchmen on the wall and their role is to be very simple. They are to cry out to God day and night. They are to give the Lord no rest until God restores their hope. Folks, just think of the persistence that's being communicated here. Give God no rest. Now, you understand the analogy here. We know that God doesn't need rest. The Bible says He neither slumbers nor sleeps. He's not a man. He's sovereign God. He's eternal God who's created everything and sustains everything. But what what is being said here is if you could tire Him out, if you could give Him no rest, that's how we're to approach prayer give him no rest 
Cry to Him. Pray. Remind Him of His promises. Evidently the Lord loves to be reminded of His promises. He doesn't need to remember them, but it's a way that we remember His promises. Now we know what watchmen would do in ancient times. They had several roles. One of the roles in ancient cities of a watchman on the wall was to sit there and watch over the land and and not only watch over the people but watch over the land and make sure that no enemy was approaching. And And if an enemy started approaching they were to sound the alarm that the people inside the city walls would get ready. Classic passage on the watchman on the wall is Ezekiel 33 where God talks about putting watchmen on the wall and if a watchman on the wall goes to sleep or he's apathetic and he doesn't warn the people of the approaching enemy then God's going to hold him responsible. The blood's going to be on his hands. And so the watchmen are to be alert. But they had a a key part in warfare. And there's the spiritual application for us. The spiritual application for us is, are are we at rest yet? No. Does wickedness abound? Does lostness abound? Absolutely. Do we have every reason in the world to be broken hearted over the condition of the world and of our nation? Do we have every reason in the world to be broken hearted over the condition of the church in America? Absolutely. Folks, this is not a time to sleep. It is not a time to rest. This is not a time to remain silent. You would think by looking at our lives and our sense of urgency or lack thereof that everything must be at peace in the land. A casual observer, if he could come to America and look at the church from coast to coast, he'd probably conclude that evidently we think the battle is all over. But Paul says in Ephesians 6 that we are engaged in a spiritual warfare. And we fight not merely against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers in high places. And so we're to put on that spiritual armor. We're to put on that belt of truth and that breastplate of righteousness and that helmet of salvation. And and we're to take the shield of of faith and and the, the, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and have our shoes laced up with the preparation of the gospel of peace and Paul gets to the end of that passage and the last thing that he mentioned that ties it all together and energizes all of the other equipment is what? Prayer 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 holds it all together and gives us the energy that we need Folks as Christians we're involved in spiritual warfare Too many Christians are at ease in Zion while the world around us is blowing up and we need to be fervent in prayer. God said in Ezekiel 22 that He had looked for a watchman on the wall, somebody who would stand in the gap and He found nobody. How tragic and sad. Paul reminded the the believers at Corinth in 2 Corinthians that while we walk in the flesh, we don't battle according to the flesh. We don't, as believers, we don't use the weapons of the world. We use 
Weapons from God, things like prayer. And so as the watchman on the wall, we need to think in terms of prayer as being warfare. We're engaged in a serious battle here for the souls of men and women and boys and girls. Because the Bible says the minds and the eyes of unbelievers, there's a veil over them and they're, and they're blinded. We need to pray for that veil to be lifted that they would see Jesus. You see, in that conflict that you might be having with a spouse or a child, there, there may be more to it. Maybe more to it than you realize. I'm not saying we look for a demon behind every bush, but folks, we need to reckon with the fact that we may be dealing with spiritual issues. We need to pray as those who are in a war. And those who are in a war, everything gets kicked up a notch. And then the watchman on the wall would do what? They would have a second uh, uh, role. Not only watching for the enemy and warning the people, but as they were watching for the enemy, they also had the responsibility. They would be the ones praying over the city, interceding for those in the city, for their brothers and sisters. We need to intercede for one another. Folks, that's not a waste of time. I want you to think about something. The Bible says when Christ ascended to the Father, He's seated at the right hand of God. And and what's the book of Hebrews and the book of Romans tell us that He's doing there at the right hand of God? He is making intercession for the saints. Now, if intercession was a waste of time, you know what that would mean? That would mean that the Lord Jesus is engaged right now in a waste of time activity. Do you think Jesus is engaged in a waste of time activity? Absolutely not. He's got a ministry of intercession. He's calling on you and I. To have a ministry of intercession. And we can have the confidence that it makes a great deal of difference. I I think of that classic passage in the Word of God on intercession. It comes in in Genesis 18. Uh, It's the the passage about Abraham and, and Sodom and Gomorrah. There in verse 20 the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I'll go down and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me and if not then I'll know and so the men turned from there and went toward Sodom but Abraham stood before the Lord then Abraham drew near and said will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked suppose there are 50 righteous within the city will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who were in it Far be it from you that you would do such a thing. To put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fear as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. You remember what, how the conversation continued, right? Abraham kept dropping the number down from 50, getting lower. The Lord said, I'll I'll spare it, lower. I'll still spare it. Finally, the Lord said, if there's just 10 people in the city, Abraham, I've heard your cries. I'll spare it. 
The point is, intercession made a difference. God's people need to pray. We need to watch and pray. Because apparently while God is sovereign, in His sovereignty, He has decreed that there are some things He will only do by prayer. God expects us to pray biblically. That's why he said, remind him of his promises. Now let's back up a minute though. There's something in verse 1 I want you to see. He says, for Zion's sake I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. In other words... God is saying here, He cares, He loves His people, and He expects you and I to do the same. Do we care enough to be watchmen? I think of that scene in Mark chapter and Matthew chapter 9. Where it says that Jesus lifted his eyes up and as he did he saw all those multitudes coming to him. And his heart broke for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And you remember the conversation Jesus had with his disciples. He didn't say try harder. He didn't say give up. didn't say worry or fret or despair. What did Jesus say? He said, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would thrust out, ekbalo, almost a violent sense to it. Same word used there when Jesus would cast out demons. Pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would ekbalo other workers out into the field. What was Jesus' answer? Pray. Pray. What's Isaiah saying? Pray. Put watchmen on the wall until we are finally at rest. Until the consummation of the victory has been realized and we're at home with the Lord. But until then, we are Again, I ask you what I did last week. Will you take your place on the wall? Devote just one hour a week to prayer. You pick the hour. You've got 168 to choose from. Make it work for you. Make it convenient for you. Do me a favor. Take out a care card this morning. If you know what hour you're going to take, just jot down your name and contact information and put your hour, the day of the week, in your hour that you'll take. And as you leave this morning, drop it in those boxes out in the lobby. Would you do that? I want you to understand that this should not be something that we're lukewarm about. Prayer is an urgent matter. Paul told the church to pray without ceasing. Folks, I want you to think about what's going on. Christians in other parts of the world right now are being persecuted. There are many Christians right now in the parts of the Middle East and parts of North Africa. There are Christians in the world right now who are dying simply because they name the name of Jesus Christ. 
The church in America is shrinking and losing ground by the day. The church is consumed with a consumerism mentality. What's in it for me? The definition of marriage is being changed. Violence and corruption is being witnessed on every level. Nations are going to war against nations. Suicide rates are at an all-time high. Drug abuse is rampant. Pornography is now one of the number one industries in America. Millions are lost and don't know the Lord. Folks, these are not days to be at ease in Zion. These are days to pray. Folks, without God's intervention, we're in a mess. And I'm not trying to be pessimistic, but neither am I going to be like one of those false prophets in the Old Testament that prophesied peace, peace, when there was no peace. And one has to have the sense, as James said in James chapter 5, that the judge is standing at the door. It's like his hand is on the doorknob and he's about to come. You have to have that sense. Will our loved ones be ready? You and I need to have the conviction that prayer is not a waste of time. God works through prayer.